6.02 here at Radio 1190, KVCU Boulder. It's Buff Sports Radio, and uh, me, Andrew Hodman, my co-host, Jake Shapiro, we're going to have a little bit of fun tonight with you. And despite a rough loss for the University of Colorado football team, there is some uh, things to either fret or be excited for, and that being in the form of ESPN's 30 for 30 that's going to be dropping tomorrow night entitled The Gospel According to Mac. And we have a special interview for you that is going to come at 6.15. We were able to catch up with Jim Potter. It's the director of this 30 for 30. And uh, he had some pretty interesting things to say, not just about uh, what he thinks people are going to take a look at with this um, particular documentary slash film short, whatever whatever you want to call it, um, but also uh, shed some interesting light on what his opinion uh, of Bill McCartney is and the legacy that he's left at the University of Colorado. It's, it's a pretty cool uh, interview, a lot of cool things to say. The other fun fact was, uh, you know, I was talking to Chap about this earlier, we actually grew up... Um, Right next to one another, like about six blocks away. Not me and you, you no, and no, Jim. No, no, no. Yes, yes, me and Jim. Um, when I called him to set this interview up, he goes, "Oh, where are you from?" And I go, "New York, Westchester County, Scarzo." Where's Scarzo? I'm from Eastchester. And at that moment, I freaked out because people from, I'm Scar- from Eastchester were down the river. Yeah, well, literally. Well, that's kind of how they all speak. And he, you know, Eastchester and Scarzo typically don't like each other. Like that's like we are we are rivals. All it's the way to it's the sharks and whatever from yeah jets jets, jets and, and sharks, sharks. Um, you know it's yeah pretty much and so I was thinking to myself like crap I just cost us the interview by telling him I was from Scarsdale but he's a good sport about it and uh, he, he grew up only a few blocks away from where I was so uh, very cool interview for you that's going to come at six fifteen but before we jump into that we uh, have a little bit of final wrap up and final thoughts from Colorado's loss against UCLA at the Rose Bowl. Um, uh, brutal might be the right word. To I describe thought it that. was so 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 Jamabo. Um, <laughs> no, I, I thought Colorado played pretty well. You know, you heard me on this program Friday night say that I thought Colorado's going to lose by three or four touchdowns. You know, they lost by three or four points. Well, actually, four points. But you know, Colorado played pretty well in this football game. Uh, they just weren't able to finish the job. You know, they're still trying to learn how to win football games. I think they're still trying to figure out all the pieces that go into winning a football game and beating a team, a ranked team on the road, and, you know, they'll get there. There, There's signs of improvement every single week, and I think this week was was a huge sign that they are improving. And I really liked what I saw from Cephalufau in this game, especially considering that he was forced to handle the ball about 120 times in this game. That's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. But, you know, Cephalufau showed his leadership uh, is still – fantastic, and, mm-hmm. and I think he got hurt at times in the game and, and still came back and, and played pretty well. Patrick Carr had his real coming-out party. Uh, I think uh, Nelson Spruce showed that he's still an elite wide receiver in the Pac-12. I think there was a lot of good things from this Colorado football team. You know, the, the unfor- and you were right about Sefo. He threw the ball 57 times, um, and while he did throw a, a tough pick at the end, Sefo actually, from from the perspective of efficiency, actually had a decent game. 37 to 57, 312 yards. He managed the game pretty well. Um, but this is one of those really just... And on the ground, too, 15 for 45. Yeah, and it's just a, a really 
horrible situation uh, for Colorado to dominate the game in the stats column the way that they did. 34 first downs to UCLA's 16. Uh, they had over 500 yards of total offense, 554 to UCLA's uh, 400. And the most damning stat of all, 41 minutes and 5 seconds of possession to UCLA's 18 minutes and 55 seconds, which is outrageous. And we've talked about the turnover battle and winning the turnover battle. This turnover battle was tied, but play calling bit this team in the butt and you know I I don't know that I was play calling it was one Devin Ross drop away from a game it's one Devin Ross drop away from a game but it's also running north to south in the red zone then taking your third down to go east to west you all of a sudden lose yards and forces you into a passing play leads to a pick six and you know I think I think a lot of people are starting to really see the frustration that's been mounting with offensive coordinator Brian Lindgren. And, you know, you talk about it all the time, how you think he's he's a very good, young, bright mind. But there are times where I think he is almost overcomplicating himself. You know, like he he tries to get too cute or tries to get too fancy or he sees something that might not be there. And all of a sudden you get a play like a third down, uh, you know, sweep out to the left when you literally have gotten 45 straight yards just pounding the rock down the middle, down the middle, down the middle. We're we're focusing so much on the negatives, though, you know. If you look at what Brian Lingren did, he put Colorado in a position to win this football game. You know, is, the, is that is that him though, or is that the offense finally well, the waking up? Well, the offense and the defensive defense is executed, but they didn't execute enough, and the offense didn't execute enough in the fourth quarter. And yes, there were some problem with the play calls. Okay, not every play call is going to be perfect. That's any offensive coordinator, no matter who. It's not going to be 100% perfect. The issue is, I think a lot of people tend to focus on the negative play calls, as probably they should. Mm-hmm. But you know, there was a lot of good play calls in this game that kept Colorado in the game and leading at times in this game, even leading late in the fourth quarter. Colorado was down in this game, I think, 14 to three at, or 21 to three at one point, something mm-hmm. like that. Yep, it was 21 and to three. Colorado came back and made it 31. Uh, it was like 28. 31, 28. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Colorado offensively, you know. They weren't able to finish the job off, but they certainly came back in this game and put themselves in a position to win the game. Now, I don't want to harp on the negatives too much. You're right. I mean, this was a a positive game and, and a very positive thing uh, for Colorado to walk into a Pac-12 road game like this and basically play straight up with the number 24 team in the country. However, there's something disheartening in the fact that after taking a game in Corvallis at Reeser Stadium, winning a game in dramatic fashion right at the end, letting the kids get the the monkey off their back and get the elephant out of the room of not being able to close out a Pac-12 conference game, then all of a sudden you come back in the next week when the score is 31-28 and you're thinking, it, the monkey's off their back. They've done it once. They might be able to do it again. And all of a sudden it turns around and you see that collapse in a way. Hold on. Last week, we saw the defense do it, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or, sorry, against Oregon State, we saw the defense do it. The offense wasn't able to finish the job off. This week, the offense was behind when they needed to finish the job off, and they still weren't able to finish the job off. If you have your defense on the field leading, maybe they're able to finish the job off because the defense on this team is far superior to the offense, and that is something I did not expect to say in 2015. The defense only held UCLA to 35 points on the road. That's a really, really good defense. And you know what? They Their, their issues of why it was even 35 points was, one, there was a, uh, a pick six that came back. 
And then the other thing was that there was two or three really big plays in this game. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, UCLA only had nine, 18 minutes of possession in the game is because the defense forced so many three and outs or one first down and then uh, out in this game. And I think the defense was really just a solid defense in this game. You know, uh, I, I really liked what I saw from the Colorado defense. And, you know, it's. It, I, I'm trying not to be over beaming with positives because of they did lose. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> but I, I, I think people are looking at it so crookedly. Colorado this year should not be beating ranked teams on the road. That's just not where they are at in their program. And for them to be coming within four points of one of the top tier programs in the in college football is, I think, a fantastic thing. Top I, tier in college, top tier in the conference, maybe. Well, top, you put UCLA up the ring? a top twenty-five team, yes, in UCLA's okay, history and UCLA's fair. track record over the last few mm-hmm. years, yes, as well as their head coach being a fantastic head coach. I think. I think Jim Mora must have nightmares about Mike McIntyre. I honestly believe it because you know you, you talk about how this you know Colorado had really no business being, and we said as much on on Friday's show last week on Friday Night Live. You and I both thought that this was going to be a blowout and it was going to be something really bad along the lines of what happened at Arizona State, but. For some reason, these past couple of years, UCLA and Colorado have played curiously close with one another. Colorado, I don't know if they, if if Coach Mack has Mora's number, if he's doing some Belichickian stuff, but for some reason, it's always UCLA that they play really close, really good football with, and. You know, I get it. I, I, I understand why you would want to be positive and why there is a need to be positive. But when you get to this point and you only see a finite number of wins left on the schedule, personally, after watching Washington State hold court with Stanford, I don't think there is another win left on this schedule. That could have been it. But we said that last week. Yeah, we did. And... That's, I mean, that's football for you. But it, from from the chairs that we are in, it's kind of our our job to do is to, for better or worse, for right or wrong, to kind of project where we think things will will stand and kind of take it based off of the past experience. Right, that but we've had. I, you know, my reaction after this game doesn't much change. I, I think Colorado. It's interesting because I thought Colorado was going to get blown out in this football game. But the only thing that changed about the, my perception of the rest of the season is I think Colorado will play Stanford tough now. I yeah, didn't think that going agree with that. before this week. So I, I, and I really don't see Colorado getting blown out in another football game is what this UCLA th- game <laughs> proved to me. Uh, it, it might sound crazy because they do have four more games left, and it is the Pac-12, and it is the upper half of the conference. But Colorado has now proven that they can go on the road and compete with a really tough UCLA team. And Colorado has proven time and time again that they have had chances to beat teams this year, and they just haven't been able to finish the job. Yeah, and, and you know, I I guess we're just going to be continually on the opposite sides of of spectrum here because this this game this game showed me what Colorado's capable of, what the team that we were promised, the team that we as media because we did it. The team that we hyped up to no end at the beginning of the year and thought there was possibility, albeit a very slight one, but there was a possibility. I, I, don't, I don't think the media was saying that it was going to be a bowl game. See, I think the players were saying it and we were reporting it. That's I, Yeah, I'll agree with you there. I Look, I personally thought this team could have won five or six. I said five or six. Yeah. And you know what? They could which still is win just, five games. Which is, which is a... If you're looking at a season of five to six wins, there is a slight possibility of bull because one of those could be a push. But so many people said they were going to go four and zero in non-conference. So what changes? They just lost to Hawaii instead of lo- instead of 
uh, beating Hawaii, they get two conference wins. Even better, you know, to show the progress. We, everyone knows that Hawaii game was a very tough game, and I know Hawaii's program is going to go down right now. Well, they're 1-6 like, right now. I mean, they've been, right. they've been atrocious. But we're the only, Colorado's the only win on their schedule. People knew going into that game that that was a trap game for Colorado. Traveling out to the that's island, true. that's not easy. And a lot of people that I talked to said that that was going to be the toughest non-conference game for Colorado this season. So to lose your toughest non-conference game and then to win a conference game instead, you know, maybe it doesn't – maybe you're not, like, looking at it uh, – uh, that greatly initially, but you're coming off of it uh, at the end of the season happier, I think, because it's like instead of we beat Hawaii, it's, oh, okay, we beat Wazoo or something. We beat a team in the Pac-12. So I think for the players that means something, that they have the ability to win two conference games. So, I, I mean, I'm trying to spin it in a positive light here because I think this, Col- this Colorado football program is headed in the right direction, and every week I keep getting backed up that it – I keep getting the, uh, the backup from the team that they are showing me that they are going in the right direction. Uh, so – I really hate the narrative of, you know, things need to change because mm-hmm. they are changing. Yeah. And right before your eyes. 614 here on Radio 1190, KVCU Boulder. It's Buff Sports Radio. And we're going to get back to football uh, and kind of preview the week ahead in a little bit of detail. But right now, for those of you that are, are tuning in for this uh, interview, it's, it's a very cool interview. It's a lot of fun. Um, but the whole concept uh, of this 30 for 30 is really touching on coach McCartney's spirituality and how that kind of has spilled into every aspect of his life. Um, so without any further ado, we have Jim Potteretz, the director of ESPN's 30 for 30 film, The Gospel According to Mac. Chap. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to tonight's feature interview on Buff Sports Radio on Radio 1190 KVCU Boulder. Andrew Hobner and Jake Shapiro of BSN Denver here with the Gospel According to Mac director, Jim Potteritz. Jim, how are you tonight? Good, guys. I'm, uh, I'm feeling good. I'm glad to be on with you. Nervous at all for the debut tomorrow? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think I'm excited and I'm really nervous. Because, uh, you know, you don't see it in front of other people. You don't have some people over in the house to watch it. But, uh, you know, I'm excited because I, I think we have a really special documentary. And I think it's a, it's a great story. And I guess I'm, I guess I'm excited for the, for the world to be able to experience it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just out of curiosity, from, from my background in programming, you know, you see shows go through rough cuts and second cuts and final cuts. How many different uh, editions of the Gospel According to Mac had to happen until we actually reached the product people are going to be seeing tomorrow? Yeah, well, I, I guess it took like I stood up six months to edit it. You know, and we were we we started shooting it in February, um, and then we kind of started editing in in May, in May, June, July, August, September, October. Yeah, so that you know we got like a you know we we got a cut that was maybe twenty five minutes too long our first cut, like our first full cut, and then we, we must have made, you know, two really big revisions, you know, to get it down to time, and then after that we made, we made you know, many, many, many revisions just, just to really fine-tune it. Would it get, you know what I mean? Sorry, go ahead. No, it's fine. Uh, would, it, would it spoil anything to, to ask what those two big cuts might have been? know much about the story but it's really sprawling you know it has to, it has to do 
really deals with a lot, a lot of things. And um, I guess, I guess you can say one of the things was that the, the championship game, the '91 Orange Bowl, that that was really, really, really long, and it became, I guess, half as long. Because when sometimes when you edit something at the beginning, you think it's going to be, you know, you think you think it's going to be really important, and it was obviously really important, but it just didn't need to be that long. You know what I mean? But there was not, there were, there were really no, no. Um, Parts of the story which we which we said, you know what? We don't think this this part of the story is important because because we really dealt with a lot of aspects of the story. I mean, the story focuses on, on Bill McCartney, but it deal but it touches on so many other things. Um, you know, people like Sal and Essie, the, the great quarterback, um, his daughter, their their relationship, uh, his relationship, you know, his his spiritual relationship, the guys on the team, uh, the racism that they. They um, encountered while well, well, they were in Colorado, you know, recruiting those guys, challenging Nebraska and Oklahoma, some of the big games, the fifth-down game. You know, there's so much. It's such an interesting story that that we really wanted to keep all of the aspects that made the story, you know, unique. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so we just decided to kind of like let's let's take a look at it and, and just tighten it up all the way around, kind of thing. Before we go a little bit more into the details, what got you interested sure. in wanting to tell this story? Well, in all honesty, uh, we, we um, I, I, uh, I'm working for Hawk Films. So Hawk Films, uh, the, the, the producer on this film is Jonathan Hawk. And Jonathan Hawk uh, directed Survive in Advance. Which was I don't know if you guys are you guys familiar with the Thirty for Thirty series? Yes, it's fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Did, yep. did you see Survive in Advance? Yes, we did. Loved it. Great. Right. Okay. So, so I actually produced and edited that for John, and but but the guy who took so we worked on that together, and we and he um the person who took that to us was Derek Whitford. you know. So yeah, obviously Derek was a starting guard and then the main player on the, on Wolfpack, you know, won the national championship for Coach Valbano, and then after he left. When Valvano got fired, he was his assistant coach. He came to Colorado, and he, and he and he became friends with Charles Johnson and a few of the other guys on the team. And he also became friends with Mac. And he was you know, he was an assistant coach, uh, Wittenberg. And then he said he came back to us and he said, "If you think our story with Valvano is great, you should see what happened in Colorado." So you know, from that moment, you know, so he was he was the guy who kind of provided the entree, and then hooked up with the Colorado and some of the guys on the team and they you know they were excited about us telling the story and you know kind of kind of went from there so the the inside process of this from, from my perspective from what I'm hearing it sounds like you guys just kind of pitch uh pitch these stories to ESPN and then they go forward with it is that is that actually how it works I think so yeah I mean I mean I think look I, I think it might work I think I don't know if you it works if every film is, is created that way, but this one was, hmm. you know. And I think that, you know, they saw that, you know, brought up a treatment and, you know, sent it to them. And I'm sure they, they were, uh, I, you know, I think with our track record, Jonathan Hawk, who, 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 who as I said, produced and, and wrote this, uh, he's also, he also directed uh, The Best That Never Was, The Marcus Dupree. Uh, 30 for 30 and also uh, Miracles and Man about the Soviet hockey team that, that aired in February so I think you know Hot Films has a really nice track record with ESPN so there's a comfort zone there so I, I think when we told them we wanted to do the story I'm sure that you know they felt comfortable doing it mm-hmm. hopefully you know I think 
hopefully that uh, their confidence has been, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. That we, uh, you know, we delivered on that confidence. Well, from from a viewer's perspective, I mean, both of those thirty for thirties were were some of the best in my opinion. But you know, the other question that I have about when you guys are out there telling the story is thirty for thirty has this very unique ability to tell every side and every angle of this story. Do you guys ever uh, feel like there is a need to balance perceptions that people might have or, or have a bias almost towards fairness and telling that entire story? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's interesting as a storyteller, it, you know, it depends. I mean, you could tell the story where you, you bring in reporters from every angle, you know, and they kind of give you the context, right? But I think for us, what really, we really wanted to do was tell the story from the perspective of the participants, you know, and, and, and feel what they were feeling. But also, at the same time, you know, fact-check that, make sure that they, you know, they were telling us the real, you know, that they were lying. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But we wanted, we, you know, we, you know, we felt like the first-person story is more compelling, and having a point of view is more compelling than necessarily uh, telling me, you know what I mean, and getting it, and kind of beating it to death from mm-hmm. every angle, yeah. you know? And, you know, I mean, when you tell, when you, if you look at documentaries, there are many different kinds of documentaries. The kinds of documentary that we want to tell, would, you, would, you would walk out of there and say, you know, it felt like a movie. I didn't know what was going to happen next. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As opposed to kind of like talking about something and then analyzing it to death, we'd rather have the, we'd rather have the action just you know, keep coming at you. One of the interesting so. things I find with this story, uh, Jim, is... Uh, have it, you guys seen it? Uh, no, 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 but we, no, we know it. I, I grew up in Boulder, so I'm very familiar with the story. Uh, but uh-huh. I'm looking forward to seeing it tomorrow night. Uh, similar to this story, is another 30 for 30, The U. And I'm very interested to see how the the glory of Colorado football is captured, as well as somewhat of the downfall. Can you sh- shed your perspective on what that will be like for a Colorado football fan to to go through the highs and lows of this once again? Well, you know, to be honest with you, we we kind of stopped dealing with Colorado football in '94. Well, like I guess the time frame for us for, for Colorado for dealing with Colorado was 82 to 94, so they kind of started at the bottom and they end more or less at the top. You know what I mean? We, we, we don't really talk about Colorado football from 94 on. I know there, there have been some peaks and valleys since then, uh, so we don't really get into the downfall, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, but, we, you know, we tried to, but, you know, but within, obviously within the, within that 12-year period, there were, there were peaks and valleys, although, although Colorado kind of, you know, they, you know when, when McCartney took over, they were pretty lousy, and um, they, they 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 kind of they they just you know they stayed lousy for a little while, and they, then they began to ascend. But I do think within that, for Colorado, I think the peaks and the valleys for that team were really off the field. You know what I mean? They ran into a lot of controversy, and uh, and how they dealt with it was really interesting. You know, and how McCartney dealt with it was really interesting. I think the players went through a lot. You know, they they went through more than, than the average player, I think. You know what I mean? 
the, the off the field stuff is much more interesting than the on the field stuff. And the, and the on the field stuff was really interesting as well, but I just think they, they you know, the, the film has so much. It's such a rich film, you know. Do, do you think uh, the Colorado football fans will view the film differently than the, the, the rest of the audience that will be viewing this film? Probably a little bit because, you know, they're biased, right? They, you know, <laughs> so they'll, they'll, be, they'll rejoice. But I, I, look, I, I really hope that, uh, that people who don't, you know, don't, you know, whatever. They, they, you know, look, if you hate Colorado, it's a different story. I mean, I, I, you know, if, if you're just an out-and-out hater, maybe people, maybe Missouri fans won't like it that much. But I think, I think everyone else will get behind the Colorado guys. And because they're great guys, you know, and you know, and Mac is a polarizing figure, and you know, I, I know he's he's controversial, and there's people who may not like him because of his politics, because of his his stance, his religious stance. But you know, I mean, he's so so. I can see some people maybe not liking him for that reason, but I do feel like he's still a, a compelling and likable character. So I think that I think the average person's gonna gonna be rooting for Colorado. So as, while, they're, while they're watching. Hmm. So from your own perspective, you know, as you begin to unravel this story and you, you start talking to Coach Mack and talking to his players and kind of understanding everything that was going on, what conclusions did you yourself draw about Coach Mack, if any? Well, I, I, first of all, I, the, one, the first thing that, that comes to mind is Mack's the kind of guy you can't put into a box. You think you have him figured out, and he will say something that absolutely blows you away. And you know he's he's not what I thought he would be. I don't think he's I don't think he's like any other football coach because I really and I and I really think what what stands out about him most is that in an age of people who are you know what are politically correct, he's he's the exact opposite of that. You know, he'll, he'll just he'll just say what's on his mind, and it's incredibly refreshing, and it gets him in trouble a lot. But he, but, but I mean, as, as far as a, a producer is concerned, or director, if you if you want a story and you you want you want a compelling subject, I mean, nothing's better than that. You know, and I also but I also think in his own in his own mind, he's a guy who who was always kind of searching for the truth. You know, mm-hmm. according to him, you know what I mean, trying to figure out that that he always cared more. Like I think if he. It, if you would take your average football coach, you think they, they worry most about football. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I think, well, obviously he really cared about football. I think he cared about other things. Uh, almost, I shouldn't say almost much, but, but he really deeply cared about them. You know what I mean? And that makes him unique in my, in, in my opinion. So, so. yeah, it's so only two questions left from us, but, you know, I want to touch sure. on that point that, you, you mentioned about political correctness, and, and I actually had one of these questions written down. It was one of the first questions I wanted to ask. Society today is more progressive, more politically correct, and when you look at um, people that are kind of deeply religious, they, they get kind of painted with, with the brush of, of a fanatic in a way. So from your side of things, as a director, how do you balance telling the story of Coach Mack and and how committed to religion he was, without making him look like he is overtly uh, a fanatic to some people, or what some people might think to be fanatic. Well, look, I think in some respects he is slightly. I think "fanatic" is the wrong word, but he, look, he's he is very committed. So there, 
and it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, I don't want, I didn't want people to not feel his commitment because that's part of him, right? That's who he is. So I didn't want to shy away from that. But to be honest with you, I think the players humanize him and how he, he interacts with the players. You see that he's, and also what he went through on a personal level, uh, you know, with the Fallon Essie story, um, and, and also just ripped with his players and, and, you know, the racial issue is huge. Um, and his role in killing, helping his players deal with that humanizes him in a, in a way that, that, you know, trying to need, you know, you know, us trying to artificially humanize him. You know what I mean? Getting mm-hmm. people to say, oh, you, you don't really know what Mac was like. He was really like this and like that. He really was like that. I mean, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? What well, Once you see him with his players, then you see that, well, this guy, you know, for whatever I think about his religious beliefs, whether I agree with him, whether I don't agree with him, what I'm seeing him experiencing here sh- sheds new light on him and makes me, makes me look at him in, a, in an entirely different context. <laughs> I wanted to go... Uh, did, I, did I answer that question well? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a great okay. answer. <laughs> You're giving us great answers. We're loving this. And I, I just right. had to, to ask you one other thing, and this is not sure. relating to the to the buffs. Uh, it's about The Last Gladiator, a film you did and you were a part of. Uh, I, oh, yeah. I, I love that. I love that story. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you that. Uh, Chris Nalen, such a such a charismatic character in that movie, uh, in that in that documentary. Uh, what 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 sticks out to you as you look on that, look back on that a few years later now? Oh well, well, <laughs> in some ways Chris is like Matt, right? Because they're both so. Well, you'll see, you'll see, you know. I because you know how Chris was un, uncensored, unfiltered. You know what I mean? Uh, what, what what stands out about it? I don't know. I just. I love getting to know Chris and I love telling his story and, and um, I'm still in touch with him. So I think, I think to me, almost like that's, that's the greatest thing is I, get, is I made a new friend, you know what I mean, who, uh, who, who, uh, who is really, who's really unique and if I ever get in trouble, you know, <laughs> if I'm ever in a barroom fight, I, you know, I can call him Chris. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can, you know, I can say anything I want to back me up. But him or Marty McSorley, you'll be okay. What? Him, him or, or if you had Marty McSorley. Marty McSorley, right, right. yeah. <laughs> oh, most of those guys. But, uh, you know, I, actually, you know, it's, the crazy thing is, I, 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 one of the things that sticks out to me about Chris is that, well, first of all, we didn't put in the film, but uh, I think he's Whitey Bulger's son-in-law. Really? But, well, his, he married his stepdaughter. Oh, okay. His, wife, his first wife, Karen, is a stepdaughter, but, you know, she was raised by that's That's an amazing thing. So when all this stuff with Whitey Bulger came out, I was like, it was really kind of funny. But uh, we probably should have put it in the movie, but we didn't want to get killed. So yeah. anyway, so, uh, and, but the other thing was, um, is that all the other guys were really nervous about fighting, you know, all the other forces we took, we talked to. And Chris never cared about fighting. It didn't bother him. <laughs> he was so said like, the thing that I worried about was, was, was going out and embarrassing myself as a hockey player. <laughs> Very funny. That's it, I guess. Yeah. Jim Potteritz, so. director of 
some of your favorite 30 for 30s, including your newest favorite one, The Gospel According to Mac, which airs tomorrow night on ESPN. Jim, it has been a real pleasure talking to you. We really, really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, guys. Uh, Enjoy the uh, documentary, and uh, I enjoyed talking to you as well. 